Hi all, welcome to the first episode of my new podcast called mm, Not Enough. Today it will be primarily me, but I do have a guest star. Feel free to introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Gabriela Hernandez. My pronouns are she, her. I am Cuban-American. I was born in Cuba and immigrated here when I was now three years old. I became a citizen this year and just in time to vote. And I met Casilla when I was in Horizons, a Horizons program orientation. Thanks for introducing yourself, Gabby. So without further ado, let's get started. Today's episode focuses on a phenomenon that is reoccurrent. You see it in several different communities. And this phenomenon is the common bargaining of oppressed, marginalized, and or exploited groups to other groups of power. Um, Another aspect of this that I would love to address today and I'm addressing now is this constant conforming and still not being acknowledged, accepted, or heard by these groups of people in power. So today I have some ideas from some well-written pieces and I want to share some of my own personal experiences that I have that relates to this topic and that's also why I invited Gabby for her special guest appearance because through knowing her I know that she has some experiences that relate to this topic. So let's just jump right into it. Each piece has its own topic, but a general theme that I can gather from each is this idea of conforming in an effort to survive or even thrive in spaces where one group holds an unjust amount of power. I'd like to distinguish this from adapting to your surroundings because adapt has a connotation where you make something more suitable for oneself, whereas the connotation of the word conform is to lose oneself, usually to meet a standard unwillingly. So the first piece I wanted to start with is Borderlands or La Frontera by Gloria Anzaldúa and I'll just jump right into this piece of this queer archive that I'd like to discuss. I abhor how my culture makes macho caricatures of its men. No, I do not buy all the myths of the tribe into which I was born. I can understand why the more tinged with Anglo blood, the more adamantly my colored and colorless sisters glorify their colored culture's values to offset the extreme devaluation of it by the white culture. It's a legitimate reaction, but I will not glorify those aspects of my culture which have injured me and which have injured me in the name of protecting me. Time to get personal. So my own personal experience with this topic Ansel Dua is talking about comes more from the second part where she talks about um, identifying with your culture and fighting the devaluation of your culture from others while simultaneously having to fight within your culture um, where they're injuring you. And where I can definitely see this is living in America and I think a lot of Americans have a misconception about uh, what Africa is as a whole, just the continent, not even specifics. I think there's a lot of stereotypes that are not understood and a lot of pejorative stereotypes. So there's a lot of fighting growing up, especially 
during my young years where you're telling people no like in my there in my village people do have water maybe it's not accessed the way it is in the united states but there is water of some sort yes people do have shoes in africa yes people do go to school yes people do take showers it's like this constant fight of having to prove that your culture is worthy and then simultaneously you're finding people within your culture because i'll never forget my uncle laughing at me and telling me like oh if only your grandmother was born with the correct parts correct parts being a testicles and a penis and he's saying if only she was born with the correct parts you would be able to own land and i definitely think that i have the agency to be able to own land just like any boy can but you see i'm fighting in my culture to be accepted to have rights just these basic rights to do these basic things and it's this fight where you're having to tell people no like my culture is also beautiful i'm a person just like you and then at the same time a fight within your own culture because you are being attacked. So I definitely understand Uncle Dua and I relate to this personally. Gabby, do you have anything to add? Actually, Gabby, before I let you speak, um, I just wanted to add, like I wanted to tie this back to conforming and bargaining and like you see how like within my own culture like i it's like feeling like you're tied you're tied between these two worlds and you are having to like bargain yourself like okay here i will try my hardest to fit what this culture deems as correct but at the same time you're going to fight for something that is against you and it's really difficult but yeah gabby feel free to add sorry there's this idea in Cuba that's part of this culture that, you know, men are supposed to be, you know, this great thing, but that's flawed because, you know, one should not conform to, you know, these expectations. My dad growing up, he's very, he was very machita that everything, men couldn't clean, men couldn't do this, men couldn't do a woman's job. So my brothers were constantly conforming to that, you know, my brother, I have a brother who, you know, who came out this year and that was very hard for him because my dad was not accepting at all. My dad grew up with this view that, you know, men had to be, men were men, men had to be tough, men had to be with the woman and, you know, it was part of his culture growing up. It's just, it's not it's not part of you know this culture society has progressed and it's very negative to you know this idea of conforming is it's not so positive because you know my brother he had a very hard time you know adjusting to that you know he grew up he had this difficulty growing up with my dad and you know everything like always having to exercise to be stronger and it shouldn't have been that way because he was you know conforming to my dad's expectation of what a man should be when you know that just isn't the case today and it shouldn't be you know the standard of society men you know men are not this you know great thing in cuba there's this thing that you know men are superior but that's not the case you know women and men are equal and i feel as if you know this constant having to conform is is just flawed and as a society since we have progressed you know past that since women have you know have right to vote and you know all these great things that you know women have been able to gain yeah.
I feel that you know we should move past that and conforming is something that you know shouldn't even exist no one shouldn't have to conform to please someone else it's something my brother did and it's not something that I agreed with but he was able to move past that and as a society we should move past conforming yeah if you don't want to Well, thank you so much, Gabby. I definitely appreciate you taking out some time to be a part of episode one of this podcast. Yay! So another idea that I got to add to this topic of bargaining and conforming, I got from the article Queer by Siobhan B. Somerville and the literature section, I'm going to read it right now. The movement to gain legal rights to same-sex marriage demonstrates some of the key differences between a lesbian gay rights approach and a queer activist strategy. While advocates for same-sex marriage argue that lesbian and gay men should not be excluded from the privileges of marriage, according to straight couples, many queer activists and theorists question why marriage and the nuclear family should be the sites of legal and social privilege in the first place. Because same-sex marriage would leave intact a structure that disadvantages those who either cannot or choose not to marry, regardless of their sexual orientation, a more ethical project, queer activists argue, would seek to detach material and social privileges from the institutions of marriage altogether. And my personal experience, time to get personal. As I was saying, my personal experience with this topic of, uh, you know, this idea queer theorists uh, had were like lesbian and gays were more conforming rather than revolutionizing. And I had this argument with my friend, his name is Ricky, pronouns currently are he, him, and he is gay. And he was telling me, like, we were arguing about this because I was telling him how the institution of marriage, like, was like, stupid. I was like, it's unnecessary. And then he was telling me how marriage is necessary within the gay and lesbian community. And I was just like, why? Give me a reason. Give me a reason. And he said something to me that really, like, without reading this, I would never have thought of it without him saying it also. He said like in hospitals, like you were not able to see your significant other if you guys were in a homosexual relationship. You could only visit somebody if you were married or next of kin. And because same-sex marriage was illegal, these uh, people who had a loved one, their significant other, their partner in the hospital, they were unable to access them, be with them because of this. And I had never thought about that, but then after reading this, it really made me think about how it is like we see marriage as this like social it's like a social privilege and like him bringing that up it made me think like then what is something that we can institutionalize like we can put in that will substitute it and i think like this is like another idea of conforming like 
where the answer would be conforming and like bargaining, but that still isn't even enough because especially in the United States, we have states that do not recognize same-sex marriage even though it is now a federal law. So I definitely think there's this example of bargaining. You see where those are bargaining, okay, well, we will get married too to fit your heteronormative agenda, but then it's still not enough because these states are refusing to acknowledge these same-sex marriages. When speaking on the topic of these marginalized groups bargaining and conforming to groups of power, I think it's very essential and critical to bring up the topic of disidentification. And I get this topic from the Queer Archive Disidentification by Jose Munoz, where Munoz writes that disidentification is meant to be descriptive of the survival strategies the minority subject practices in order to negotiate a phobic majoritarian public sphere that continuously elides or punishes the existence of subjects who do not conform to phantasm or normative citizenship. I hope I pronounced that correctly. In this piece, Munoz also brings um, up the idea of queerness and how it is often understood as a quote-unquote, it's a white thing. Time to get personal. So speaking on my own personal experience with disidentification, I'd like to start with the last thing I mentioned, which is, uh, which was about how queerness was seen as like a white thing. Munoz talks about this. And I definitely dealt with this on in my own personal life. I remember when I was telling my mom, like she knew that I was minoring in LGBTQ studies. And I was telling her a little bit about what I was learning. And then my mom tells me like I'm being brainwashed. Like this idea of being gay comes from the West. Like it's not, like it's not real, it's not legit. And it's really difficult hearing that when that's my minor. And like, and it's really difficult how this idea of queerness being a white thing when it's been around since the beginning of time. And, and I think a lot of people that come from immigrant households have this idea, well, immigrant households where it's immigrants coming from the East to the West, where it is this idea that all of all queerness and homosexuality is idea that comes from the West. And I think like a type of bargaining that I think many immigrant like elders that came, not all, but many, I think their bargaining is they're like, I'm okay with LGBTQ, like I'm okay with the community, as long as my family, my children, like they don't, they aren't a part of that, which definitely defeats the purpose and kind of definitely contradicts everything that you just said. And I think another uh, type of bargaining that like, I know myself from my own personal experience with LGBTQ youth is this idea of bargaining with like the group in power, which is the heteronormative or heterosexual majority of like your culture or your family structure, which you often see because just like Anzal Dua was showing us, you can be bargaining within your own culture even if your culture is oppressed by something bigger. So yeah, you're bargaining with your family, the, the bigger structure, the structure more in power, that you still love them, but you have to lose part of yourself in having to love them. 
Another piece is Zami by Audre Lorde, and I would just like to read an excerpt. She says, During the 50s in the village, I didn't know the few other black women who were visibly gay at all well. Too often, we found ourselves sleeping with the same white woman. We recognized ourselves as exotic sister outsiders who might gain little from banding together. Perhaps our strength might lay in our fewness, our rarity. Time to get personal. So my own personal experience with not knowing who would be um, attracted to you and then bargaining with yourself uh, definitely stems from colorism within the black community. Being a dark-skinned black woman, you, you are often stigmatized and seen as undesirable. So there's this bargaining that Lloyd also talks about where she says, we recognize ourselves as exotic sister outsiders who might gain a little from banding together. So I think you often definitely see it and from my own personal experience where you bargain and when you are seen as undesirable or you are seen as the outcast, you kind of bargain with yourself to see yourself as exotic and the outsider to make yourself feel like you are desirable in a way. And I think this goes hand in hand with the disidentification. To navigate spaces where you are not necessarily welcomed or represented, you bargain and you try to make the narrative fit in a way that you do fit within that community where you are not re represented. And the last piece that I will be discussing today is the Puar piece, and the name of it is Bodies with New Organs, Becoming Trans, Becoming Disabled. And this piece goes over several things, such as transnormativity and its connection with whiteness, and also transgender right, the transgender rights movement versus uh, trans justice organizing. But one thing that I really wanted to highlight is this concept of transnormativity, and it is defined as... A process of normalization that works to produce, deploy, and sustain a very specific conception of trans people that are welcomed into the national body politic and that through this welcoming demonstrate the goodwill of the neoliberal state. This welcoming recapulates certain trans people as productive and good citizens. Just to kind of summarize that, transnormativity, it kind of shows how within society there is a normative discourse of what is a quote good or quote acceptable transgender person and what a transgender person specifically has to do to even be considered to be worth respecting. My own personal experience with this concept was actually quite horrifying and I would imagine it was more horrifying for the person who was directly involved. I was more of just a witness and it was my freshman year of college and I had been coming back from studying or from class and there's something at the University of Miami on Wednesdays where they have a market and a whole bunch of vendors come in and those the student and they were also just walking um, on campus and I don't know if they're coming back from the market I don't know the context but I know that they were just walking and this student um, I do not know if they were transgender or non-binary but you can obviously tell that they were not conforming to the rigid dichotomous gender standards that we have for women or 
men and as they were walking these men these people who worked for the vendors they were in a group and they started snickering and pointing and they started to say what i assume to be very rude things i couldn't necessarily hear but you can obviously tell it was a tense situation where this person was just trying to walk to wherever they were going and they were being and i don't know what was being said but you can obviously tell that this person that was walking was obviously being harassed harassed and then um out of nowhere that person just broke out into like a, a sprint like running away and I was so angry how this person was being harassed because they were not passing as either a woman or a man and uh, to this day I don't like how I reacted to that situation because I was not able to catch up with that person so all I did is I walked up to the workers and I said wow look at that person getting their education being so strong and I just walked away I honestly didn't know what to do but I wish I would have asked these people that were harassing for their names. I wish I would have reported it, but you know, lesson learned for any future harassments that I view. But this experience for me, you know, it really just, when learning about this in class, I was really able to connect this idea of how it, the concept of transnorm transnormativity makes it that there's this ideal standard of how a transgender person must present themselves in order to be respected in society. We see this when people are talking about um, how there are transgender people in the military and how they're fighting for our rights and they can't get good health care or they're not given rights. Like It's this idea of they shouldn't have to be in the military, they shouldn't have to do this, they shouldn't do have to do that in order to have these rights and freedoms that other people have. It is just uh, human decency, it's just human respect, it's just basic human rights. So I, I think um, the Poir piece was a very nice piece to end on because with transformativity, we see that it should not be all of these different standards, it should not be all of this bargaining, all of this conforming in order to be respected. It should honestly just come from basic human decency. That's where respect should come from, in my own opinion. And we see with all of these different examples, ways how people are conforming and bargaining to people who are seen in more powerful positions than them and it not working. So we, I look forward to a time, even if I'm not here to live through it, a time where the majority of respect comes from not you changing your entire identity to fit a standard unwillingly, but just the fact that you are a decent human being and that you accept those who are also decent and we use this as the standard to respecting one another.